Ventura County dropped our lawsuit after a year. Woo! That's a great way to respond, to give the Lord that praise. And we thought, somehow we've got to get together and celebrate, right? That we've been set free after the tyranny of our county supervisors. So the best we could pull off is on May 1st, which is Saturday, 4.30, about an hour and a half before our Saturday night service. Here in the back of the church, we're going to have uh, barbecue tables, everything set up. We're going to have hamburgers and hot dogs and just celebrate, a real celebration of the Lord's deliverance. And so it's our own. Uh, Thanksgiving meal for, we'll call it hot dogs instead of tyranny. You know, it's a simple. <laughs> All right, Pastor Rob's going to br bring the word of the Lord. Amen. They may have dropped their lawsuit, but we haven't dropped ours. You don't violate the First Amendment. You don't violate the Fifth Amendment. As those who govern by our consent, constrained by the articles of the Constitution that you swear to defend and think that you can get a mulligan on that one. They have taken the livelihood of, of business owners in this county over a virus that has a 99.8% survival rate in this county. And, and we're in the discovery phase right now with our lawsuit, and we want those documents. We want to know how you justified ruining our county and doing what you did to our people. So we're not going to stop. Now, if you want to throw your cards in and fold, hey, listen, you were bluffing all along, and now you're throwing in your cards. We paid to see the cards. Show them. We're going forward. That's all there is to it. We didn't want this. I made a phone call to every public official that, that had the ability to just leave us alone. We didn't want to be national. We just wanted to just do our own thing. They're the ones who brought it to the front of the press. They're the ones who wanted to make an example of us. Our elected officials started tweeting things that, that were awful in regards to this congregation, that were wholly unfair. And, and now they want to say no more. Well, your words matter. And what you did has to be held in account. And, and uh, I got a, a reporter asking me, are you going to be running for Linda Parks's seat? <laughs> I'm so busy, I think I'm twins. <laughs> yeah, let me just be supervisor. That, let's just add that. I, I will say this. Um, they asked if our church was funding the uh, recall effort. And, and as I told you last week, I said to the reporter, that the first I've heard of it. And no, we aren't. And there are actually other people in this county who don't like the way that, that supervisors have been acting. So, um, listen. 
they, they, they govern by our consent. And it is our right and our duty when they violate that constitution and they inflict tyranny on us and they violate our inalienable rights that we can remove them from office. And, you know, all of them I consider friends. I actually like them. But I, I am I'm just completely confused as to why they did what they did. We knew the data. They knew the data. And if they're complicit with what the governor wants to inflict on the citizens of California, then it's the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, meaning that they should push back to Sacramento, not kowtow to them. They should protect us. I, I was, um, I was uh, in Phoenix, got back last night uh, at the uh, Turning Point USA event with some of the students. And an amazing event, to say the least. Such a, a tremendous blessing. Um, I was getting on my flight in Burbank, and there were some congregants there. I, I kind of felt like a celebrity, you know, like, hey, hi, you know, how you doing? Hey. <laughs> uh, and, and I, yeah, I'm upgraded because I fly a lot, and I'm in the front of the line. I go up, and I put my ticket there, go, boom, red light. I'm like, oh, gosh. <laughs> Can you stand to the side? I'm like, here we go. And, 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 and the agent comes over and says, well, you obviously have a boarding pass, but we don't have you on the flight. Okay. Uh, they changed planes. Something probably went wrong. I said, okay. And they said, um, just stay here while everyone's funneling into the plane. And I'm like, no overhead. What am I going to do with my back? You know, calming down. Lord, you got this. And I had a piece about it. I'm like, I'll still get to Phoenix. And... Then they come up just as the plane's almost full, and it's a packed flight, and she says, you know, we gave away your seat. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Do I have a seat? We have a seat for you. I said, okay, great, thank you. Real sweet lady. I get on the plane. I sit down. There's still more people to board. I sit down, and it, nice, it, it's an exit row. I guess they save those for people who are important. <laughs> I sit down the exit row. The seat's empty next to me, and a, a priest comes in, and he's wearing his his outfit and he, he's got his vestments the like the formal outfit you can tell that he's carrying it and he doesn't want to wrinkle and he puts it on the overhead sits down and I look at him and, and I, I recognize him I go are you are you Father Robert Altier he's like yeah I'm like you're my hero this guy has contended with the bishop in his own area in Minnesota and has stood in opposition to COVID and the fact that they've shut their parishes down and the, the, and the bishop took away his chaplaincy and he was attacked and vilified. And I'm thinking, there are more of us than there are of them and, and they want us to think that we're in the minority. We are not and it's time that we stand for liberty. And I'm looking at that guy going, you are a stud. And he goes, who are you? I go, I'm Rob McCoy. He goes, I, I know you. <laughs> God is good. We're going to win this thing. Stay the course. <clears throat> We're going to be taking a look at the book of Leviticus in a moment, but before we do, um, I did a podcast with Charlie, I, I, and a lot of you were here now. It's going to be on Fox and Friends this morning. They called and postponed it, uh, and, and thank God, because I would have been up at like five or something awful. I got in late last night. I, I, I'm glad it didn't happen. But I, I did a podcast with Charlie, and I, I've been pondering and burdened 
by critical theory. And I had a really neat text with James Lindsay who wrote the book Cynical Theory. And, and I told him, we got to get this thing set up. I want you here. And he said, we'll do it. And he's going to pick a, a week. And he, we'll, we'll be putting that in stone this, this next week as we talk. My wife and I, we're, we're going to get away for a few days uh, this next week because our 31st anniversary. And yeah. So. I love you guys, but I don't want to see you. Yeah. So... Um, we, we were arranging that, and, and I, I was pondering this critical race theory, and I was starting to get really frustrated because I'm, I, there was this young girl uh, who started a turning point chapter. Avery is her name. She started a turning point chapter at her high school in Minnesota, I believe. And one of the students sent out these texts saying that Avery had put them together, and they were vile and completely racist. And the entire school shut down. They began to protest. They began to threaten her. She needed security guards to bring her in and out. Um, and, and, and the entire administration attacked her. Only to find out later, as the FBI came in to investigate, only to find out that another student had done this. And they, 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 they'd already maligned her and attacked her and her life was in jeopardy and she was ostracized in the community and lost everything. She's 16 years old. And they called her a racist. And the person who wrote that was sympathetic to BLM, was an activist, and had put this throughout the school. And they declined to state the name of that individual as though somehow they're allowed to do that, but we can still attack her. And this brave girl, when the entire world dissipates and backs away from her, stands. And I say that because I was talking to a room full of students yesterday. And they're my heroes. I, I told them yesterday, I said, courage isn't the absence of fear. We're all scared. We're all scared. But know this too, peace isn't the absence of conflict. You're contending with an ideology that wants to destroy America. And the weapon that they use upon you is fear. They threaten you. <clears throat> You're going to be all alone. You'll have no friends. The culture will cancel you. You'll be labeled, mocked, and ridiculed. And you see the bravery of Avery. She stands up. She's not afraid to lose everything because she knows how critical it is. And I'm thinking to myself, she's fighting for her generation and a generation that despises her. They have no idea what they have been duped into and how confused they are. I think the same thing with much of the church. You see, critical race theory, our young people love these two terms, and rightfully so. They're good terms. Social justice. They look at the ills of society, and they want justice. That makes sense. I like that. And, and they mean well. They want, they want to restore and right the wrongs in society. Amen. But the problem is... The term has been co-opted and stolen by the critical theorists. You see, critical theory, the idea of critical theory is there's no absolute truth. Two plus two isn't four. Truth is defined by your power in your people group, intersectionality, in your victim group, to hold political power 
to define truth for the rest of the people. And so when they say social justice, what they mean is anyone who has an immutable trait, meaning the absence of melanin in their skin, are systemically racist. And the reason why is because the culture of the Enlightenment, scientific theory, and empirical data believing that there is discoverable and known truths and there's absolutes in the universe and a God that governs them is a white man's concept. And that must be erased if we are to succeed. And this came out of, yeah, the modern society where when, when the Enlightenment thinkers put this together, John Locke and others, and they started to look at the scientific method and empirical data, society began to flourish. And we started to look at things and judge them based on knowable truth and realizing that there's an order to the universe and there's laws that govern us. And it caused Western society to flourish. But then with the absence of God, even though we were able to apply all these sciences, we removed morality. And from this, you saw the rise of Hitler in an industrial state like Nazi Germany that created machinery based on the scientific method that wiped out six and a half million Jews. And so these philosophers got together and they said, how do we come up with a different philosophy so that we're not going to face this again? Because all of Europe went through World War I and World War II and they, they meant well. They didn't want mankind to use scientific method and empirical data to destroy mankind and the nuclear bomb and all the things that were on the horizon and the fear. And so they came up with what they called postmodernism, where they said, look, there's no absolutes. And it, and it took off with the art world where you had guys like Pollock and other artists that, you know, their, their paintings are worth millions. And really all it is, is like some kid threw up on a canvas and you're like, oh, that is so deep. And you're like, no, it isn't. I can do that with my left hand. A monkey could do that. And so people kind of giggled at it and then it kind of dissipated in the 90s. But then the victim groups, and these are folks that have not been able to gain traction in modern culture because there's, there's a basis of morality and, and, and the disdain is the church itself that we would stand in opposition to, to things that are... are, are are not able to defend themselves in data. So you you look at transgender, and instead of calling it a mental illness, you you are now a bigot because there's not just two genders, there's hundreds. And so so they, they remove the ability to, okay, then let's logically debate that and let's look at the data. Well, we can't. They, they don't talk about the folks that go through transgender surgery that have an unbelievably high suicide rate. They dismiss that. We don't want your data and your logic. That's white man. That is systemic racism. And so we're not dealing with your truth and your logic, and you don't have a right to speak because you're white. And then they do what's called intersectionality, where they take these victim groups and they, they give them higher status in the, in the social order. The, the lowest social order is a white, male, heterosexual Christian. You need to shut up. You are responsible for the ills of the world. America is the most systemically racist, and you shut up. And at the top of the food chain would be 
you know, somebody with a, a, a darker uh, immutable trait, more melanin. So black, female, lesbian, uh, atheist. That, that's the top of the food chain. Well, look, do what you want with my immutable trait. Wipe me off the face of the earth. I, done. I, I, had, I have no control over this. And the idea of male, again, I had no choice over that. And then the heterosexuality, which is a moral imperative, because I, I, I wasn't born to be monogamous. None of you were either. It's called the sin nature. Heterosexuality is a choice to subscribe to God's moral law. And, and, and so, in this intersectionality with these, these two contending, this one's to be silenced because it's responsible for the enlightenment in Western civilization and modern society. So we have to silence them. And now we are going to bring in our truth. And our truth is, this, this, our truth is defined not by logic. Our truth is defined by political power. We will cancel you. We will control all of the press. We will control every vestige of society. We will own the, the institutions of higher learning. We'll be on your school boards. We'll be the teachers of your children. And we will tell them what truth is. And while we've been sound asleep because the church doesn't do politics, they have realized that their truth comes from political power. This is the most nefarious design to silence and destroy the church in America and American culture and freedom. Because when you do the intersectionality, it's not white, black, male, female, heterosexual, lesbian. It's Christian, atheist. Flip it. These are irrelevant. Because in a, a world where we've abandoned marriage, there's going to be same-sex attraction. People are struggling. The moral law has been removed from our culture. So it boils down to this. Who gives freedom? Who makes the rules? Are these rights inalienable? Is it God who says you've been created as image and these are inalienable rights endowed by our creator and that all of us have free access to that? Or... Is it atheism where man is in control and based on an immutable trait, I have authority over you? Man enslaves, God sets free. Now true, there are ills in America, but we have a supply and demand issue of racism. There's an enormous demand for racism, but there's a very small supply. We have to send FBI agents out to a NASCAR garage to look at a noose. Jesse Smollett has to fake this. Avery has to be faced with lies to declare her what she isn't. And they want us to be pitted against one another so that they can divide us and then enslave us. And now they're indoctrinating all of our children and the church must rise to this occasion to say that must stop. And the only way we're going to do it is to compete in the, le in the arena that, that they have found their truth and their strength, meaning the secular progressive critical theorists. They are in politics. And, and I've been saying this for 20 years and people are like, you know, that pastor's too political. And they would leave. And I get it. I get it because we were, we were embracing Christianity that, that concentrated pleasure and, and avoided pain. And we had the coolest music and the neatest smoke machines and it was just relevant and fun and kind of quippy and cool. And then all of a sudden all hell breaks loose and those churches, you know, fold like a cheap suit. And then we're here, and we're contending, and they're, they're criticizing us. Yeah. 
But we're standing on their behalf because liberty is not man's idea, it's God's idea. I keep saying that and you understand it. And we must contend in the political arena because Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, which is public square. And the gates of hell will not prevail. While we've been busy making, uh, spending money we don't have to impress people we don't know, buying things we don't need, they have been engaged in the public square. The secular progressive world has occupied the ecclesia while we've been playing church. And now God's redefining all that. And I'm watching as churches across America are awakening. And the coolest thing is we have theological differences, but you know, critical race theory is such a first world philosophy. You know, people are so disenfranchised and angry and they have, they have unbelievable uh, wealth that they can, they can spend an entire year in Portland burning buildings while their parents are sending them money. And, and, and we've, we've allowed all of this to infiltrate the entirety of our society. And now all of us are gathering and those young kids are gathering and they're saying, I want, I want a future. And I looked at them and I said, you are brave. And the secret to courage is not the absence of fear. The secret to courage is that you have to love liberty more than anything else and be willing to give up everything for that sake. And all those kids have done it. And, amen. You're free, clap. That doesn't care. But they need us. You know, they're a secular 501c3. There, there was a, 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 not, I don't know if it was a cross-dress or a transvestite, I can't remember, but they, they, they were standing in applause. Because a minister's up there sharing that these inalienable rights come from God and, and this idea of absolutes. And they understood, they're all struggling. But they want a way out of, of the jungle of confusion. And they're looking for moral direction. And all of you, by what you've done, you're inspiring them. And they're moved. And churches across America are awakening to our responsibility. And I, I just, I left there so blessed and so hopeful and those kids were thrilled. They gave me a standing ovation. I mean, kids don't do that. I'm 56. I mean, they're like, why is he wearing what he's wearing? Why is he so fat? You know, they don't, they don't do that. They're precious and they're brave, fearless, and they're hungry for their future. And we're going to give everything we have to make sure that that future is secured in liberty. And that's all there is to it. Almost there. I, got, I saw the coolest meme and I wanted to read it to you. If you cheat getting into college, you can go to jail. If you cheat getting into America, you can go to college. <laughs> so as Pastor Rick and I have split um, our time, Saturday nights, he's talking through the New Testament in the anchored book, which is reading through the Bible in two years. I'm doing New Testament, I'm in Leviticus. Reading through Leviticus this week, I thought the previous week was a little tough, and we got through leprosy, and that was fun. And then I, I, I started reading through this week, and it begins with bodily discharges. <laughs> yeah, a nice little cup of coffee, and having your morning devotion, and you're reading about bodily discharges. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. 
And, and it talks about sexual deviation and all these other things. And then it goes into the Day of Atonement. And then it goes into, the, in, into uh, uh, blood. It's like a whole chapter on blood. And, and I, I'm reading through this. And I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be a fun one. But the Lord had me see in the very first sentence of Leviticus 16 something that deeply touched me because it put it all into perspective. And, and I knew he had something for all of us because it ministered to me. I know it'll minister to you. So if you have a Bible, open up to Leviticus 16. If you don't, these folks that have been waiting patiently through my long introduction, holding these stacks of Bibles exhausted, would love to give you one. Help them. They're struggling. <laughs> I have to tell you something about this. And I, I haven't gotten permission, so I'm going to keep it kind of vague, and I, I, won't, I won't disclose who it is, but um, I was at an event locally, and this adorable couple comes up, um, and, and, and the man comes up to me, and he said, I'm 85 years old. And he said, my wife went to your church, and... When you say, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. And she raised her hand and um, you gave her a Bible. And she converted with me to Judaism when we were first married. Married 60-something years, I don't know, but Jewish. She said she snuck at home. She didn't want me to know I had it. And she's smiling, nodding. He said, I, I found it. I think he said he read it in six weeks, cover to cover. 66 weeks, cover to cover. He said, and I started coming to, to church with her. And he said, for 84 years of my life, I have been a practicing Jew. And in my 85th year, Jesus is my Savior. Her, her sharing with me was even sweeter, what she had shared, and I was touched by it. Um, but I just want you to know... They didn't just hand you a book that's a book. It's the only book in the world where you don't read it, it reads you. It's, it's profound. In a world that is struggling to find truth, I want you to know that book that you're holding is spectacular. It'll set you free. It speaks about the freedom of man. It is the book that is, it is the encyclopedia of liberty. It's the source of liberty. It's the one that has come to set the captives free. It contends with tyranny. It's profound and powerful. Read it. And in this day and age, we need more of it. Now, prepare yourself. Because I'm going to have you stand in a moment to read all of Leviticus 16. And you're going to be exhausted because it's long. But I don't care because I stand the whole time. So everybody take a deep breath and let's stand up. Passage begins, verse 1, now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, uh, Nadab and Abihu, Nadab and Abihu, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died, and the Lord said to Moses, now try, they're speaking, they, they don't take shorthand, let's say that you're getting this instruction, try to remember, retain it all, because if you screw it up, if you're Aaron and you screw this up, you're dead. Right, so let's just see how simple the orders are from the Lord. Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just 
any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. Okay, I got that. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Mm -hmm. Thus, Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. And he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. It's basically underwear. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are the holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water, put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots. It's like throwing dice. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. One lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And by the way, the word scapegoat was translated by Tyndale from the Greek into the English. And it's only three times. That word is only found three times all in Leviticus 16. It is the coolest word. It exists in our lexicon in America where we talk about scapegoating somebody. All comes from Tyndale. All comes from the Bible. Cool word. We'll take a look at it. And the other lot for the scapegoat. Verse 9. Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offered as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself for his house and shall kill the bull as a sin offering which is for himself. Then he shall take the censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil and he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. Make sure you're paying attention Aaron. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Don't do the west side. East side. Represent. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Not six. Seven. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull. Sprinkle it on the mercy seat before the mercy seat so he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins and so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes into make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out of the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull of some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar and all around. And then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come, this is 
Exhausting. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off, this is interesting, shall take off the linen garments, the underwear, which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place and then put on the other garments, which is the priestly garments. Come out and offer burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people and the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar and he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp, the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement for the holy place shall be carried outside the camp and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. This shall be the statute forever for you. We're almost done. This shall be the statute forever for you in the seventh month and on the tenth day of the month you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls, and it is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes the holy garments and then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly this shall be an everlasting statute to you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year and he did as the Lord commanded Moses amen yeah Lord thank you for your word and God, you have something very special to say to us. Lord, this isn't an exercise in exhaustion. It's very important that we comprehend what it is that you are communicating to us, especially as a nation. And so Lord, please, I pray that we would understand the concept of atonement, the idea of afflicting our souls, the realization that we need a mediator the realization that blood must be shed for the remission of sin. Lord, all of these things are critical for the sake of the nation, but more importantly, for our lives individually. So God, please, I pray that you administer deeply through your word. Speak to us now, Lord, we pray. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, have a seat if you would. I was walking in and Tom Hunt, who was a butcher, uh, he whispered to me, he says, you know, Rob, there's 10 gallons of blood in a bowl. That's a lot of blood. And you have the goats, there's a lot of blood in those. I don't know if Tom knows the answer to that. He's probably, oh, it's 4.6, I don't know. Why blood? I mean, we're the only religion in the world that sings about Blood. Why blood? And, and you go into the next chapter, and as I was reading, I was touched by it. And you also see, even in Hebrews, which is written to Jews so that they come to understand their Messiah. In Leviticus, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Why, why does blood make atonement? Hebrews says, 
And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness, no cleansing of sin. Blood. Why, why does blood have to be shed for us to be forgiven? And, and, and the amount of blood, I, I, don't, I don't know if you can comprehend this. If you go through and you're doing your Levitical study, there is a, the, the blood is just, the amount of blood that's flowing is ridiculous. Take a look at blood. Blood is essential to life. Blood circulates through our body and delivers essential substances like oxygen and nutrients to the body cells. It also transports metabolic waste products from those same cells. There's no substitute for blood. It cannot be made or manufactured. You have red blood cells. You have white blood cells. You have platelets. And it's fascinating because the, the, the plasma is kind of the fluid, the yellow fluid, and, and, and you can separate the red blood cells and the white blood cells and the platelets. Platelets are critical for the clotting of blood. You cut yourself and these platelets show up at the location and they, they, they do like a Greek warrior. They intertwine. Oh! And they create a blockage to so the blood, you know, and, they, and those, those platelets do that. And, and you see microscopically, it's fascinating what blood does. And then, you know, my blood works overtime because it, it removes, you know, impurities and waste in the body. And they're like, you're eating that again? Like, ah, you know, and their blood's like, let's move this stuff. What do we do with all this cholesterol? Push. <laughs> more meat, more troops, blood. Blood also regulates our body heat. You know, our, our blood vessels can constrict or expand, uh, causes us to get colder or warmer. Blood is one degree warmer than the human body is itself, so it can control that. It can, it can bring the blood closer to the, to, to the skin so that we, we're warm in a cold time. It can restrict it so that when it's hot, uh, the, the, the skin will have the ability to cool and it sweats. It creates that evaporative cooler kind of concept. And... And, and blood is the one element in the human body that affects every element of the body. And if you bleed out, you die. If you go into an emergency room and, and you've got a femoral cut and you're, you're bleeding out and, and you know, you, you've broken your arm or you have an enormous you know, stage four cancer you know, mole on your neck, they, they don't care about that. They gotta stop the bleeding or you're gonna die. It's the life of mankind. So when the blood is removed, the person dies. So the reason why blood is required is because it is the life source of the human body and sin causes death. You see, sin is cosmic treason. We're the only creatures in all creation that have disobeyed what God has commanded. We're the only creatures in all creation to be created in his image We've been given the ability to have a relationship with him, to love him. We've chosen not to. We've chosen to walk away and do things on our own. And we somehow think that we are the center of the known universe and the world revolves around us. And we've come up with philosophies to remove God. And, and then we find ourselves inundated with confusion and a lack of freedom. And God says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and, and it's the, the law is the wiser strengths that make men free. And, and God gives us these constraints because he knows that sin wants to creep in and destroy us. And he goes through all the different vestiges of the, of the family makeup and the relational issues and, 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 the, and the sexual interaction. He knows that we're, we're creatures that have been given the gift of sex, which is an expression of intimacy. It's intended for a, a husband and wife where you, you, you connect on the physical, emotional, and spiritual level. And the intimacy is, is the, as it says in Genesis, they were naked and unashamed. It's like, I, I know you, and you know me. 
And, and you've worked through those things. And, and, and as we talked about pain last week with, with leprosy, we want to isolate pleasure and remove pain. But, but as I said, you know, the three rings of marriage, the engagement ring, the wedding ring, and the suffering, the, the, idea, of, <laughs> the idea of marriage is that for intimacy to occur, you've got to work through issues. And you're living with someone who knows your issues and you know theirs. And, and you, you have to be honest. And when, when you get to that place and you share life together, there's, there's just that connection. And God gives you that expression. But in our culture, we've, we've, we've concentrated pleasure and isolated and we've removed pain. And so we, we, we can have that pleasure and avoid the pain of, of working through life. And all that does is it, is it begins to warp us. And, and now we, we don't look at each other as serving one another. We, we look at, the, you know, they don't meet my needs anymore. And then we start becoming selfish and self-consumed. And, and we can find that pleasure elsewhere. So why have to deal with the pain? I, I, don't, I don't have to exercise to get endorphins and to feel good and, and have my body working. I, you just... You can, you can mess with your endorphins with an opioid. And so we've isolated the pleasure, we've avoided the pain, and what's happened is we violated God's principles. We've taken something intended for intimacy and we've just used it for pleasure. And now it, it tends to, it, it, it warps an entire society. And now you're at a Turning Point USA event and you've got somebody who doesn't know if they're a man or a woman. They don't know how to dress. And, and they, they've struggled through life and, and they're... They're traumatized in, in, in some respects. And, and we've abandoned marriage because marriage requires endeavoring through the difficult seasons of life and, and laying your life down. It requires hard work. It requires humility. It requires, requires submission. That you, that you would afflict yourself. That you would, you would humble yourself and you take inventory. And we don't want to invest in kids. We'd rather farm them off to someone else to raise. Because I... I I want to go spend money I don't have to impress people I don't know to buy things I don't need. And in America, we are a nation of affluence and we have, we have concentrated and isolated pleasure and now we're in a mess. Because divorce is now rampant. Kids no longer in a single parent home know how to, going from 12 to 13, being children of the law, being adults, and, and going through this identity, uh, and, and as children now coming into adolescence, and it's critical that they would look at mom or dad, and they would find in them how they're supposed to act as a man or a woman, and that's missing. And then society confuses it, because we, we want to embrace our sin and call evil good and good evil, and now we've removed truth, and now critical race theory is infiltrated our school systems and, and, and we don't care. We don't even know. It's, it's, it's everywhere. And while we've been busy doing church, they've been occupying the ecclesia. And while we've been busy with pleasure, they have been removing truth. And now we're all hurting. And now we're all enslaved to our passions. We're enslaved and we're watching our families destroyed and so God goes through all of that and he says, look, you know, the, the, the bodily discharges and the blood and the atonement and, and all the stuff we're talking about in human relationships, this isn't an exercise in futility, it's for your health. From the moral law comes civil law and, and we, we, we want you to have that building block of culture, which is family. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Submitting to, to one another in the fear of God. Children, obey your parents. It'll go well with you. You'll live long on the earth. That's the building block to, of every culture as a family. You destroy that. It's amazing. The government will help the single parent. The government will help the grandparent. The government will help the child. But the government won't help the family. Because if they can divide the family, they can control the individual. And so here we are. And we come to Leviticus 16, and it's called the Day of Atonement. Atoning. Atonement is an interesting word. It means kafar in, in the Hebrew. It, it means to cover. It's a propitiation. It's, it's, it's what you would, it's what they put on the ark, the bituminous pitch that filled the nooks and crannies so that it could float. It was a covering. It, it appeases, it cancels, it cleanses. It pacifies, it pardons, it purges. Atonement is critical and it's powerful. It has this ability to take away the consequences of sin. But you have to recognize what sin is. And that's why this passage was so moving to me. Leviticus 16 is... The passage of scripture that is probably the most holy portion in some respects to the Jewish world. In it is found the most holy day in the Jewish calendar called Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Now they don't have a temple anymore in Israel, but I'll tell you, in September, I think it's the 16th of this year, September 16th of this year, on Yom Kippur for 25 hours in Israel, I've been there. The whole nation shuts down. Television stations stop broadcasting. Radio stations stop broadcasting. There are no flights into Ben Gurion Airport. At 1.30 p.m., it's over. And for 25 hours, nobody drives a car. No movement. You sit and you afflict your souls and you take an inventory of your life and you say, what have I done that I need to give to God to be right with him. And the nation takes inventory of their moral condition. It's profound. The whole nation shuts down. If you've never seen it, you have to. And they look and they think to themselves, what do we need to do? I want to make it right in my relationships. I want to fix things. We never slow down long enough to even contemplate the lint in our belly button. And yet they do. And the part that hit me, as I said earlier, was the first verse. Because it begins on a reflection of Leviticus, I think it was 10, when Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, walked in to offer incense to the Lord, and, and the Lord smote them both. Just dead. You don't trifle with God. It's amazing as we're wa watching Christendom, the churches are now what I call woke churches and they got a woke Jesus. They, they've, they've made the scriptures to be whatever they want. They're defining their own truth. It's tragic. And as a result, 
They think that God wants to save everybody, and he does, but they think that God, everyone will be saved. But the only way to be saved is blood has to be shed. Somebody has to die that we might live. We saw this with the leper. One dove would die and the other would, would fly. And then we see it again here. But the most profound part of it that hit me, and I pray it ministers to you, I had a conversation with a friend of mine, and he's, he's a minister, and, and Charlie pointed out, he said, you know, I never realized, and Charlie is, he's a voracious reader, and he's a, a, a student of culture, and he just said, I never realized until I was hanging around with you, Rob, coming into contact with folks, the term PK kid. I go, yeah, it means pastor's kid. He goes, I know, I mean, he said, it's a culture of people. I go, it is. I said I had lunch with a pastor's kid this week and I heard his story and it was heart-wrenching and I, it was with another pastor who's a pastor's kid and he said, I, I didn't want anything to do with my dad and I found myself in ministry and I'm struggling over even now. And I remember when I entered into ministry and I was seeing the, the catastrophe of pastor's kids. They, they were just train wrecks. And I remember just saying to the Lord, look, take me out of the ministry if it's gonna come at the expense of my children. Lord, I, 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 don't, I don't want them to have to deal with this. As a minister, I'm called to this and I'm equipped to do it. Kids don't get a choice. They're thrust into it. And it's a really profound dynamic because everyone in the church looks at them differently as though somehow they've been born with holy blood. <laughs> Trust me, they haven't been. <laughs> and then they use your kids. You're a pastor's child. Why are you doing that? I mean, oh, come on. Let me say that about your kids. And not that anyone in the church has ever done that. To, to 20 years, I, I don't know that I've ever experienced that, quite honestly. It's a precious congregation, but I've heard stories. And I just thought, Lord, how do I avoid that? And, and I, I think the success has been primarily by their mother's prayers, because Michelle is just a prayer warrior. But the part I, I've tried to contribute is... When people, when, when you're the mouthpiece, they, they, they call it uh, hermeneutics. Hermes was a mythical creature between the gods and man. He would communicate. So when you're doing hermeneutics, preaching, people tend to, to place on you some holy mantle. And, and they, they, they think that the service and the message, you know, is the man. It's not. And, and then you're, you're, you're contending for righteousness and, and, and so they afford you an honor. And, you know, you, you, the, an oak of righteousness. Well, when your life is identified and you're walking through a room and, and, or you're in an airport and people are saying things, thank you and God bless you and you're, you've really inspired me and, and your kids are next to you, they're looking at someone who's done something and they're thinking, if I'm going, because nothing, nothing of substance grows under a mighty oak except for little blades of grass. And their futures ahead of them are thinking, I don't know if I could grow up under that. I don't know if I could be what my father is or my mother. And so the only way is to, to do the opposite of what they do. So they go out and, and they make a life for themselves in unrighteousness. Well, this I know how to do and I'm really good at it. And if, if, if you don't believe that, just look at the first verse. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. Aaron just lost his two boys. 
Aaron is revered in the community. In Exodus, he's wearing an outfit that is kingly. It's got the, the 12 stones for the tribes of Israel, each with a precious gem. It's in a gold breastplate. He's got a turban that is a crown, and it's the way it's designed and the intricacies of what the Lord had, had established. And then this golden sash and a robe that is resplendent with pomegranate bells at the bottom that you know, are out of gold, and they make noise as he walks, so they even hear him coming, and he carries himself, and yes... And, and you know that guy's significant. And here he's supposed to, to do this. He's, he's supposed to sacrifice and, 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 and do the scapegoat. He's supposed to be the one who has the authority to take all the sins of Israel and go and lay his hands on this goat on behalf of all of the children of Israel. He's a significant person. And Nadab and Abihu see their dad and they're like, you know, and the reverse is true too. Congregations can be tough on pastor's kids, but pastor's kids can be tough on the congregation. They start to, they, talk, they, they, they take for granted the holy things of God. And they go, yeah, my dad's a pastor. And they walk through, and, and yeah, my dad's a pastor. And they, and they think that they can get away with everything. They were born on third and they thought they hit a triple. And, and, they, and they carry themselves that way. Well, that was, that was Nadab and Abihu. Either situation results in misery. And Aaron has lost his boys. And he's thinking to himself, I've ministered to everyone but my kids. I never wanted to go through that in life. I, I, I would... I. I don't want to be in the ministry if it's at the expense of my children. And, all, and, and I'm thankful all my children walk with the Lord. They're all precious. And I'm grateful for that. But I, I think I found the secret. You see, when he'd have to do the uh, atonement, and as we were reading through the passage, this is, this is what he looks like. When he goes to work every day. But the day of atonement, where he's going to deal with the sins of the nation, he has to first deal with his sins. As you notice in verse 6, it says, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. He shall make atonement for himself. He's killing that bull, listening to the groans of that beast as 10 gallons of blood are being poured out. And he's looking at the mess of it. And he's realizing that's just solely for me. You, you, can, you can start to believe your own press when you're walking through the room in an outfit like that. And people start saying nice things about you and you think as though you had something to do with it. Yeah. I'm... I, What's ever happened in this church has nothing to do with me. God is calling all of us to liberty. I just, I just happen to be the mouthpiece. It's like press record. And the most powerful thing to me, and I pray it ministers to you, is that whenever I'm with my, my kids, 
The one thing they're always going to see in me is humility. They live with me. Things are caught, not taught. They're observing. When you blow it, own it. And tell them you're sorry. Apologize. You know what? You know what an apology does? It, it causes humility. That's where they get the term afflict your souls. Afflict means humble yourself. You're not God's gift to mankind. You're the steward of their lives. And you'll have nothing to say to anyone you speak to unless you minister to them. And the best way to minister to them is to minister to their mother and your wife. And you, you go through life and you see your sins. You see how it affects your kids and you want them to go away. And you do the hard things to make sure that that's taken care of. But the most critical point of it all is whoever you think you are in that uniform, whatever your title is, know this, that when Aaron went into the presence of God and he was going to be an intercessor, he had to make sure all of his sins were covered by the bull, 10 gallons of blood. And when he did that, he had to take that outfit off and he put this on. He literally had his underwear and a turban and a sash made out of white linen. He was in his underwear. Going to work, dear. You're in your underwear. He's walking into the presence of God in the most humiliating outfit you can imagine. Everyone has that dream that you wake up in your class and you've got your underwear on. He's wearing underwear. He humbles himself, divests himself of his glory, and puts on humility, and enters in because the ground at the foot of the cross is level where all sinners saved by grace. And I would venture to tell you, as I've told you often, God has me here because I'm the worst of all of you. He takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. And if, if we're to lead, we lead by an afflicted soul, by, by humility, by acknowledging that. And, and the cool thing is, and I'm blessed by it, is folks can say, look, if Rob can do it, anyone can. But the critical component of this as we're entering into this 40-day fast, as we're in, involved in this 40 days fast to rend our heart, it, it's exactly what the, the nation of Israel does, this Day of Atonement. It, this is time that we as individuals need to take inventory. As it says in verse 31 of the passage we read, it says, this day is a Sabbath, a solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. And on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you. He will cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. And he, he slaughters the one animal, and then all of the sins of Israel, Aaron recites on the head of this scapegoat. And they wrap his horns in the scarlet thread. I mean, it would, it would take me all day just to do the front row and ask you guys to write down your sins for the year. And it, it would be copious amounts of notes, just here alone. And all of us, could you imagine this room, let alone the nation? Now, a lot of us have them in common. Basically, once you have, you know, the Word document, you can just kind of put your name next to the sin everyone does. And some of you are going, well, I don't do that. 
Well, yours will go in the category of pride. <laughs> which is probably one of the worst sins there is. Because it was pride that caused Satan to say, I'll be like the most high. And that started the whole mess. So, hey, we're going to give you a gold star for sin. And, and pride gets you in the way of humility to afflict your soul and humble yourself before the Lord. And all of us stop and take inventory. And when you, you take inventory, you realize, wait, this atonement comes at a price. Blood. Gallons and gallons, hundreds of gallons of blood. 650,000 soldiers died on the soil of the United States of America atoning, bleeding out for the sin of slavery. Lincoln understood it. Read his second inaugural address. You cannot violate the laws of nature and nature's God and get away with it. People will die. You can't shutter businesses and take away people's freedom. Twelve months in American recorded history, the highest number of opioid deaths ever recorded in American history as a result of this mess. You can't do that. You can't isolate people and take away their freedom to worship God. 300% increase in child abuse in our county. You can't do that. It's wrong. And we must afflict our souls and say, God, where am I responsible for this? You can't rip apart the baby in the mother's womb and flush it into the sewers of our nation and expect God to bless us. We have to, we have to stop. And we have to look and say, God, what do you want of me? How am I responsible? I've lost my children because I've, I've allowed them to bring this false fire into your presence because I've relegated them to be taught by somebody that's not the steward of their life. I am, and I haven't given them the moral law. I haven't shown them right from wrong. I haven't humbled myself. I've been busy uh, uh, about all the things I want. I don't care about the next generation. It's all about me, and I, I don't want to suffer, and I've isolated pleasure, and I've, I've, I've elevated it as, as, as a priority in my life. And when I see this, as Aaron is seeing the blood, he just sees it, and he's just, Lord. And there's nothing more profound that I've witnessed when all of Israel shut down. Sandy Koufax, if you guys are baseball fans, he's one of the most famous Jewish athletes in American sports. He made national headlines when he refused to pitch the first game in the 1965 World Series because it fell on Yom Kippur. When Koufax's replacement, Don Drysdale, was pulled from the game for the poor performance, he told the Los Angeles Dodgers manager, Walter Alston, I bet you wish I was Jewish too. <laughs> Aaron took off the garments, wore the underwear, and you can imagine that as he's performing these rituals, he's just covered in blood. It's everywhere. And he takes off the garments, and then he puts on his garments. When the atonement was finished, when he was in his underwear in humility, when, when it was finished, the high priest emerged from the tabernacle in glory with the humble garments taken off and his normal clothes for glory and beauty. On the day of the atonement, the high priest was humble, Leviticus 16.4, which we saw, he went to his underwear. He was spotless, and he was alone, and he emerged victorious. And as you can see, each of these aspects is perfectly fulfilled by Jesus and Messiah, accomplishing the same work of atonement.
picture of the linens that Jesus wore and that Aaron wore. Jesus left the glory of heaven's throne for the humiliation of an earthly cross. He humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. He was hung between two thieves. He was mocked and ridiculed. He did not think equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant unto death. And then he emerged victoriously. He wore linen in the burial chamber, but now he is a king. He's always been, but he's a king of righteousness. Like the scapegoat, the sins were put on him. And the coolest thing about the scapegoat is they take it out into the wilderness and, and they, would, they would let it wander and you never want to see it again. It would just wander away as though your sins had left. And I love that because God, it says in the scriptures, cast our sins as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. And as I've said oftentimes, if you're at the North Pole and you start traveling south, when you get to the South Pole, you're traveling north. But when you begin walking east, you never reach west. That goat's gone. God's forgiven you. And the beauty of it is, because of the sacrifice of Christ, the Messiah, you don't have to go through this ritual. But because it's simpler, doesn't mean it's not significant. It may be easier, but it is still serious. God's not to be trifled with. He does love us, yes. But you don't change the rules so that you can justify your sin. You afflict your souls. You humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He'll lift you up. But you have to agree with him. The laws of nature, nature is God. We can't be violating those anymore. I had two scriptures and I don't see them here. Did you guys pull them up? I sent them to you. You there? They're all scrambling, poor guys. I did send them earlier. I just didn't warn you. Called a curveball. Yeah, that's not it right there. That's a palm tree. I didn't send a palm tree. I'm going to close with these two verses. It says in 1 John, if I can recall it, 1 John says that if we confess our sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's, it's, it's the soap of God. Here they are. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then 1 John 4.10. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. He paid the price. Propitiation means he took care of it. The requirement for sin is death. The requirement for sin is blood. He did that. Romans says whom God has sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance. And then 1 John 2, 2, if he is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This day of atonement, this picture of blood, the, 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 the picture of afflicting our souls and, and, and rending our heart before God it's a time to take inventory and stop and just, I have good news for you. First of all, see your sin the way God sees it because that's what's put us in the mess that we're in right now and let's start living by his rules. And his rules aren't burdensome. They bring us life and it's good. We've, we've tried it without him and look at the mess we're in. So dust off the old book, go back to the rules. 
And they're not legalism, it's, it's, it's a joy that sets us free. Start to look at things the way he sees them. And if you made some mistakes like Aaron did, the blood was shed for you. And as that scapegoat went into the wilderness, Aaron was able to say, thank you, God. And from this point on, I want to do it your way. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. The Apostle Paul says, forgetting what is behind, striving for what is ahead, take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. And right now, he wants to cleanse you of all unrighteousness because Christ's blood has already been shed. And you receive that, that forgiveness. You, you receive that atonement. You receive that covering. You receive the negating of the offense by faith. You say, Lord, thank you. I receive you as my Savior. You're cleansed of all unrighteousness. The Bible says you believe in your heart. You confess with your tongue. Jesus, you're Lord. You're my Savior. You're saved. You're cleansed. You're atoned for. You're a new creature in Christ. And now it's time to live for him. You've paused. And he will be your Lord. And his rules will be your guide. And the world will be a better place because we're going to operate from his directives. Amen? Amen? The nation needs an awakening to this. And it's going to begin right here with us. Because it seems like God wants to use this little church to do some cool things. So let's start some revival right now. Let's have the worship team coming up. Would you bow your heads with me as the worship team's coming up? I want to lead us in a little prayer. And this prayer is one of my favorites because you don't find anything like this in Scripture. But I do like it because it's, it's a time where you're going to put a stake in the ground and you'll never forget this day. As long as you live, this is the day that Christ's blood atoned for you. You were cleansed. You humbled yourself. You afflicted your soul. You took an inventory. You realized, boy, that was a costly price that my Savior paid on that cross. And Lord Jesus, I ask that you would cleanse me of my unrighteousness. I received that sacrifice. You paid that price and I receive it. You did that for me. You humbled yourself as, as the king of kings and then you became a servant unto death. And you did that for me. And, and I, I want to receive that. And the Bible says, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved in the glory of the Father. If you profess me before man, I profess you before my Father in heaven. The joy of that is, as our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, I, I'm going to be the only one with my eyes open. So please honor that. And, and, and this is going to be a uh, a contractual agreement between you and the Lord. You're, you're just going to put that stake in the ground today. You're, this is going to be the day that you receive that atonement. And so if you want to receive that right now, you want Jesus as your Savior, it's real simple. It, it would cost Jesus everything. It may be simple, but it is profoundly significant. If you want that right now, I want you to raise your hand. God bless you. God bless you. Just put them up. Don't be ashamed. Amen. You're being cleansed. You're being forgiven. The transaction's complete. You're a new creature in Christ. The scapegoat's gone. It's forgotten. It's forgiven. You can put your hands down. God bless you out there. I saw some hands too. And I know folks tuning in live stream. God bless you. If I didn't see it, it doesn't matter. God did. And the Bible says that when one person comes to Christ, the angels in heaven rejoice. And we, we do that with them. And so, Lord, we thank you for those who have given their heart to you this day. And, Lord, this is the first day of the rest of their life. And it's a life that is going to be abundant because you've come that we might have life and life more abundant. Thank you for forgiving us and cleansing us and for your sacrifice. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's clap for those folks who gave their hearts to the Lord.
Let's stand and worship the Lord.